On April 30, 1945, Lee Miller finds her way to an address she's been carrying around in her pocket for years. The address of Adolf Hitler's apartment in Munich. The door is open. The owner is in home. Hitler is in Berlin, underground, doing his last Hitler things. So, Miller and her companion, the American photojournalist David Sherman, let themselves in. Just a few hours earlier, Miller and Sherman had gone to Dachau, the first concentration camp created by the Nazis. American soldiers had reached it the day before and found the gates locked, the guards mostly gone, and more than 30 train cars parked outside, filled with decomposing bodies. By the time Miller and Sherman arrived, among the first press on the scene, thousands of prisoners in various states of dying were being liberated. And Miller photographed them in their striped uniforms, crammed in the pigeonholes of their bunks, standing beside bones and ash in a crematorium, and piled up in heaps, skeletal and starved, their eyes still open. Now, in Munich, Miller fills Hitler's bathtub, places a photograph of Hitler on the edge of the tub, and a small statue of a nude woman on a table. And then she strips leaving her muddy boots on the pure white bath mat. When she steps into the water, Sherman photographs her, and then they switch. Miller photographs Sherman, washing off the filth of war in the home of the man who started it. Around the same time, in his bunker in Berlin, Hitler swallows a cyanide capsule and shoots himself. The war in Europe is nearly over. But for Lee Miller, a different kind of war is just beginning. This is the Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. Today, a story of conquest and liberation, and a woman who discovers her best self in the worst possible situation. I'm Tim Geary. Let's start the story at the end. After Lee Miller dies in 1977, her only child, Anthony Penrose, goes up to the attic in the English farmhouse where she lived her last years. And he finds several trunks full of photographs and diaries and letters. Penrose had been raised mostly by a nanny and became estranged from Miller, who, in his words, had been cruel and abusive and drunk. She was very good with words, he would tell the Los Angeles Times and could skin the hide off me. I really hated her. She never talked about her past. And so, there in the attic, Penrose begins to discover 
who his mother really was. Starting with the woman who grew up in Poughkeepsie, New York, with two brothers. And he learns from one of them that Miller was raped when she was seven years old, likely by a family friend, and was infected incurably with gonorrhea. And that shortly after, her father began taking photographs of her naked. The first one when she's eight, standing outside in the snow. The last one when she's in her 20s, lying in bed with her friends, all of them naked. Penrose thinks perhaps he did this to help her, to show her that she's pure and clean, that she has nothing to hide, or to inoculate her against shame. But also, he thinks perhaps it was predatory and voyeuristic. In the photographs taken by her father, Miller often looks uncomfortable. Her gaze detached with the, quote, numbed blankness of disassociation, as Penrose puts it. A quality, he claims, that later served her well. But when he writes a play about his mother in the early 2000s, he doesn't mention any of this. The assault or the father's photographs. It's too tempting for people to see her, he says, as a damaged, tragic figure. Lee Miller is 19 years old, studying with the Art Students League in New York City, when Condonast saves her from being hit by a truck. If you believe the story. Condonast, of course, is the publisher of Vogue and Vanity Fair. And when he sees her, this fashionable young woman with short blonde hair, he hires her to model for his magazines. By March 1927, she's illustrated on the cover of Vogue. And soon she's being photographed by Edward Steichen, the house photographer for Condé Nast. In Lee Miller, Steichen has a model who already knows what the camera wants. She's been in front of a camera, for better or worse, most of her life. In just a couple years, she becomes the first real supermodel with that cool, detached look that still is the standard pose. Only, for her, it's no pose. It's just her. And then, one of the photos by Steichen is used in a Kotex ad at a time when women's personal hygiene is considered too personal for public discussion. Miller is branded the Kotex girl, and work falls away. She decides to go to Paris, and because Steichen feels bad about everything, even if Miller doesn't, really, I would rather take a picture than be one, she says, Steichen writes an introduction to Man Ray, the surrealist photographer and artist. Not that she needs one. When she gets to Paris, she tracks him down and says, Hello, 
I'm your new student and apprentice. And Man Ray says, No, you're not. I don't have students or apprentices. And she says, You do now. Surrealism is what the cool kids are up to in 1930, right? It's also more welcoming to women than much of the art world, at least at first, because it's all about rejecting boundaries and convention. Well, certainly Man Ray is welcoming once he realizes, as Anthony Penrose puts it, that this incredibly bright and beautiful New Yorker has improbably dropped in his lap. Soon, Man Ray and Lee Miller are running away on vacation to be a Reeds. Ray teaches Miller everything he knows, and some things he doesn't know. Miller and Ray are in the darkroom one day, when Miller turns the light on, not realizing a print is still in the developer. And Ray comes in and quickly turns off the light. And when he throws the print in the fixer, voila, they have a solarized image. Like the one she made of herself, little more than an outline of her face and features, now in the collection of the Minneapolis Institute of Art. Ray starts to give her work. Scraps, really. The commissions he can't or doesn't want to do. Like documenting surgery at a medical school, which she's totally okay with. She shoots a mastectomy and asks the surgeon if she can keep the amputated breast. For some reason, he says, sure. And so, she takes it to a fashion shoot and photographs it on a dinner plate. This detachment between what she's seen and what she's feeling is kind of ideal for surrealism, but it's driving others crazy. Like, well, those who want to manipulate her. It's really hard to manipulate someone who doesn't give a sh. You are so young and beautiful and free, Ray writes to her. And I hate myself for trying to cramp that in you, which I admire most. Well, of course he tries anyway. Like many of the male surrealists, he sees women in some sense as another object. He photographs her back as a cello. He photographs her torso, cutting off her head. He puts her lips in a painting, puts her eyeballs on a metronome, waving back and forth at him. And so, having learned what she came to learn, Miller does the one thing an object is not supposed to do. She leaves. Miller has turned the tables, right? She's on the other side of the camera now, for the most part. 
She opens her own studio in Paris and photographs Charlie Chaplin and sleeps with him. Then she opens a studio in New York, shooting fashion and celebrities, and is named one of the seven most distinguished living photographers by Vanity Fair. Then she closes the studio and marries an Egyptian millionaire and moves to Cairo. Then her husband sees that she's bored again, so he buys her a ticket to Paris, and on her first night there, she goes to a party and meets the surrealist painter Roland Penrose. And they fall in love, or something like it. And they go to the south of France and meet Pablo Picasso. And Picasso paints her, and she sleeps with him too. Now, it's still only 1937. Miller is still only 29 years old. All this has happened in just a few years. If I need to pee, I pee in the road, she tells a friend. If I have a lech for someone, I hop into bed with him. A few years ago, a documentary about Lee Miller airs on the BBC. And a British artist and model named Jesse Mann talks about Miller's sexual adventures and what it meant at a time when only men were really allowed to be adventuresome. Way to go, she says. It makes me so happy to know there's a blip in history where at least one woman had a good time. Of course, it's hard to know if Miller is really happy, picking up and moving all the time. And maybe it's not a question of happiness. Is prey really happy about having to constantly outrun predators? Or is it just a way to stay alive? When it's clear that Miller is leaving her husband for Roland Penrose, despite promising to be with her husband always, she tells Penrose that their affair, quote, makes me cynically suspicious of any attachment I might make. My always don't seem to mean much, do they? And yet, as Europe collapses into war, she and Penrose stick together, more or less. Miller and Penrose catch the last boat to England from the French town of St. Malo on September 1st, 1939 the same day that Hitler invades Poland. Miller is now stuck in London, a city at war. But she needs to work, so she meets with the editor of British Vogue, who assigns her to shoot some how-to-be-a-good-war-wife kind of stories. Mend your clothes, Cut your hair so it doesn't snag in the bomb factory. Which is fine. It's totally fine. But she's feeling a little ridiculous, tacking up the window dressing while the house is on fire, so to speak. Some 18,000 tons of explosives fall in London in the early 40s. When the Vogue Pattern House is bombed, Miller photographs the ruins. And with Vogue's approval, she begins to turn her camera toward the things that most fashion magazines, not surprisingly, have been looking away from. 
1942, when American troops arrive in England, she gets credentials from the U.S. forces to be a war correspondent, one of only a handful of women photographers with access to the front lines. She has a uniform specially made in Savile Row. And in 1944, just six weeks after D-Day, Miller sails for Normandy. Miller goes to Normandy to shoot a field hospital for Vogue, focusing on the nurses. And she writes about it, too, in the colorful style of someone who sees poetry, even amid the bombs and blood. The ward was like a jungle of banyan trees, she writes, a maze of hanging rubber tubes, swaying in khaki shadow, one to the nostril and one to the wound of each man. On her next trip to France, in a tank landing ship, she hitches a ride to St. Malo, which she thinks has been liberated by the Allies. Instead, she finds the Germans still in charge. The Allies are dropping napalm. The city is on fire. When she tries to take cover in a German dugout, she grinds her heel into a severed hand and throws it across the street. And here, among the ruins, she meets David Sherman, the photographer for Life magazine, who was surprised to find the former model looking, as he puts it, like an unmade, unwashed bed. The two photographers set out to cover the Allied push into Germany, together during the day and, eventually, at night. They're often the first on the scene. By the time they get to the concentration camp in Dachau in 1945, they've seen Nazi officials lying waxen and dusty, as Miller writes for Vogue, having toasted death and poisoned themselves. They've seen defiant German townspeople who seem nice enough during the day and take potshots at the Americans by night. They've seen liberated prisoners beat their former guards. At Dachau, of course, they see what seems unbelievable. When Miller sends her photographs to British Vogue, she writes her editor, I implore you to believe this is true. War is hell, and maybe never more than at the bitter end. But for Miller, it's also a kind of heaven. Here is adventure and independence and romance and respect. For that, she's willing to go through hell. As Sherman later says, she is, quote, not afraid of the evil that men can do. Eventually, the war really is over, and Miller goes home, alone, to London, and then to a big red brick country home in East Sussex, 
with Roland Penrose. She has a child. She gets a few assignments, but her heart's not in it, and it shows. And soon the work dries up. Then her sex life dries up, and the quiet of the countryside settles over her until it's unnerving. For some reason, she writes the Sherman, I always want to be somewhere else. When she asks a doctor friend about it, he says, There's nothing wrong with you, and we cannot keep the world permanently at war just to provide you with excitement. But she paid a price for all that excitement, the freedom and fulfillment she felt on the front lines. She paid for it with the evil she seemed immune to, but no one ever really is. The horrors she witnessed, the trauma she must have buried. And when the war is over, it's all she has left. Sherman calls her a peacetime casualty. And eventually, she's the one who kills herself off. She packs up all the photographs, the ones she took and the ones of her. She packs up the maps and military passes, still splattered with mud. She packs up the letters from lovers and the looted souvenirs. And she puts it all in the attic. This has been the Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. I'm Tim Gearing. Now, a little contemporary coda to this story, which was recently recounted by the writer Neil Lewis in the Columbia Journalism Review. It seems that Maureen Dow, the New York Times columnist, was covering the end of the Iraq War when she visited a U.S. military facility that had once been a palace for Saddam Hussein. She sees a bathroom with a tub and goes in with a colleague, locks the door, and gets in the tub. And her colleague takes a picture of her in the same pose as Miller. Anyway, find us on the web at artsmia.org. Leave us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks very much for listening.